You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To uh, week four of heaven, hell, and everything in between. Again, we are calling this our Hydra course, because for every question you raise, two more will pop out. Um, there are a lot of questions. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, there's uh, myself and my friend Petro and our other friend Sean were driving back from Regent last night, and we just started talking about these things. And as we're trying to answer questions, just the three of us came up with quite a few other questions. So uh, this is a great thing about this class. And it's good to, um, I think it's good to think about these things. Uh, these are things that, uh, we don't often think about, but they have immediate relevance because the reality is, I don't know if you realize this, but um, I was reading a study that the mortality rate in Canada is about a hundred percent. And so it's good for us to be studying this stuff, yeah. Okay, so tonight, tonight we have uh, we have some really fun things that we're going to be looking at. And you'll notice in your notes how much more detailed and colorful your notes are. Yes, is because I didn't do them. <laughs> we have with us uh, tonight uh, my dear friend, um, Petro Kovalev. Yes. And uh, for those of you, yeah, let's give him a hand. Yeah. For those of you who have been uh, part of our men's breakfast, you'll be familiar with Petro. Uh, Petro is a, uh, a graduate from uh, my alma mater, Regent College, um, he, but he's got his, uh, his PhD in the area of theology. Uh, he studied and he's from uh, Kiev in Ukraine. And uh, currently, he, uh, he serves as the uh, Maltz Program Manager at Regent College, and that's a Master's in Applied Leadership. And so it's this uh, great uh, Master's program that Regent offers. He's also instructor at uh, Pacific Life Bible College, where I teach. And, um, and he's uh, just a very, very good thinker uh, in the area of theology. So I hope you realize that all the really hard questions from last week, I kept saying, wait till this week, right? Because I, I had an ace in the hole, right? I had uh, Petro uh, coming tonight. So uh, without further ado, I, let's uh, welcome Petro, and I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll just dive in, okay? All right, let's pray. God of all grace, we thank you for your grace and for your kindness. We thank you for Petro, and we pray that you administer to and through him. Uh, may he be a conduit of your grace and your truth, especially as we explore these really important things. So guide us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, David. Good evening. It's great to see you all. And... Yeah, finally we'll hear all the answers to all the questions you had. <laughs> Actually, I'm kidding. Uh, it's funny when David asked me to, if I would like to participate in these evenings, he gave me a list of questions. And I looked at all of those, like, oh, all, all of those are really hard. But I noticed one that I thought, like, it's really easy. Because it started something about salvation, bodies, souls. And I love this topic because I teach the whole course on salvation. So I'll take the number four, I think it was four or three. 
But then I found out actually what this topic is about, uh, that it's not so much about salvation, but it's about life after death and all the details and what will happen. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is one of the most difficult topics in the Bible. <laughs> so to be honest, I'm struggling with this topic, but today we'll struggle together. Is that okay? So we'll just try to walk through some of the scriptures and kind of try to see them from different perspectives. Um, and maybe just to begin, I would like to share one story from my early childhood that maybe will put all this discussion into right perspective. I remember when I was a little boy, I grew up in Ukraine. At that time, it was Soviet Union. And of course, under communism, uh, with a lot of propaganda. And uh, this is how we grew up. And I remember one time uh, in Ukraine, as also in many other countries in Europe, also in Latin America, soccer is very popular. So my dad is a big fan of soccer, and one time he was watching a game, and I was probably like maybe four, and I was trying to understand what's happening, who's playing, so I came to my dad and asked him a question. And the question sounded like this, Dad, which is our team and which are Germans? And for you, it may not make sense, but like we grew up in the war propaganda, right? Like we watched movies as Soviet Union fighting Germany, and for those who are Germans, Anschuldigen Sie bitte. Yeah, sorry. But this is what propaganda does to people, right? You, you look at things from certain perspective. So I asked him, like, were our team, like we had our local team, I was from the city of Lviv, and we had uh, our local team, so I said, where is our team and where are Germans? So I could know like who I should, uh, you know, uh, choose in this game. Uh, and for my dad, it was a difficult question. Actually, he had to answer in a way that would kind of change my whole perspective because it wasn't playing our local team. It was team from the capital of Ukraine, Kyiv, which in a way it also was our team, right? Uh, which this was easy part. But Germans, he actually said, uh, son, these are not Germans. This is actually a team from Georgia. And uh, so it's team from Kiev playing another team from Georgia. Uh, but this was not the end of uh, what I tried to find out because I, I was trying to find out who is winning. But actually, this was for me only two options. You either lose or you win. But actually, I didn't know that actually there can be a draw, right? So that was a third option that I didn't consider. Um, but as we talked with my dad more about soccer, uh, later, and as I grew up, I understood that this is not only about winning or losing, it's also about playing a beautiful game that uh, those who watch it can enjoy, and you can show really good game, and uh, those who watch it can really have a pleasure in this game, right? So as we approach this subject, we may also have some questions. Right, and maybe you're in a way similar to myself. Like you just tell me, where's our team and where are Germans? <laughs> but maybe we have to look at this from a little bit different perspective. Maybe we have to ask some other questions. Maybe we have to look at some other options. Right, not just two options that we heard. Uh, so. As we consider today this topic of afterlife, David said, everything in between. So actually today we are going to talk about everything in between, right? To be honest, it's not an easy topic because uh, there are different perspectives, different views, and we'll try to look at some of those. But before we dive into that, uh, I would like you to discuss 
at your table and those who are watching us, maybe if you're with someone, just talk to them or maybe just write down some answers. What is your current perspective? What do you think happens with person? And let's uh, look at the person who is faithful, who is a Christian and a wicked person. What happens to them after they die? Okay, I'll give you maybe three minutes. Hopefully it's not too difficult question, but let's talk about this. What is your perspective? Maybe why do you believe this? What is your foundation? What kind of scriptures support your view? <laughs> the tables have different perspective at your table? Or did you all agree? Did anyone have different perspective at your table? So what were some of your answers? Can you share? So what happens to, let's say, righteous, faithful, Christian after they die? Same place, but what place? Okay, we don't know. Okay, that's okay. Okay. Yeah, we've seen those pictures, right? On a cloud with a harp playing, okay. What else? Any more answers? Yeah. Abraham Bosom? Is it like stomach area or what? Like, <laughs> what are you doing there, like at Abraham's Bosom? <laughs> okay. So there is a bunch of people waiting and you were just stuck near Abraham, right? Like <laughs> in, waiting in line. Okay, what else? Thank you. Any other perspectives? What happens to the righteous person? Okay, what happens to the wicked? Unbeliever who doesn't trust in the Lord. That should be simple, right? Like I already hear, they go to hell. Cast away. Hellfire. Okay. Separated from God. Okay. Any other answers? But uh, remember, I asked you, like, uh, also why you believe this? What are scriptures support your idea? So, about separated from God, goes to hell, like, what scriptures would you use? Lazarus and Richmond. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's a good passage. We'll, we'll talk about this later, yeah. Any other passages? Names written, not written in the book of life, yeah. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. Okay, we are judged by what we have done living in our bodies. Okay. Uh, so we are going to talk more in depth about those issues, uh, but you know, like when we study any passage of scripture, you know that it's important to read this passage in the context, right? In the context of the larger passage of the whole book and actually in the context of the whole Bible. But the same is true about Christian doctrine because every Christian doctrine is connected to some other doctrines. I don't know if you ever had this experience when you're working in the garden and you pull a weed. 
Like in some weeds, like they're really hard to get out, right? They are connected with their roots with some other plants. So if you pull one and they pull some others, right? And this is sometimes what happens when we kind of begin to look at one passage or we begin to highlight one, uh, one doctrine or teaching and it's connected to all other teachings and doctrines. And we begin, when we begin to change it, everything else changes. So it's all interconnected. Uh, so before we talk about this, I feel it's yeah. important to talk about some of those connections. Of course, we won't be able to cover everything, but at least three, uh, three areas I would like to highlight. One is area of our theological method. It's actually how we think theologically, how we approach theologically to, to this topic. Also, we'll mention about anthropology. This is teaching about us as human beings, who we are, what we are and also teaching about salvation, because all of those uh, doctrines, they will impact how we think, how we discuss uh, this uh, topic of afterlife. So let's start first to talk about our theological task. So how we form our doctrines. And if you, um, if you look at the scripture, you very seldomly will find clear teaching where Paul says, okay, now I'm going to talk about this. And he gives you outline and clear uh, statement about this or that doctrine. Maybe there are a few that in 1 Corinthians, he would talk about Lord's Supper, about the resurrection. But normally we would find different teaching uh, in the context of some practical matters where Paul addresses, uh, he talks to a particular church when they had a problem. And in the context of dealing with that problem, he mentions maybe resurrection or afterlife or something else. So in a way we could compare it to the pieces of puzzles which are part of some biblical pictures. So when we try to form a picture, we, try, we need to find those pieces of puzzle that, that relate to the topic we are studying, and then we use those pieces to build a big, large picture of our topic under our consideration. So in a way, we could compare it with a big puzzle. Uh, you probably all have done uh, this, right? Putting puzzle together, and probably some are really good at this. And what do you usually do when you, when you put a puzzle together? You start with edges, right? And actually, this is true in theology. Because uh, usually the frame, right, this, those edges, they give us contours of our picture. So it's very important to remember about gospel. Because gospel is those edges that gives us right contours of what should we, be, uh, we should believe. But what else do you do, like other than edges? Yes, yeah, similar colors, right? You try to group those uh, pieces of puzzles in similar colors, and then you try to find like how they fit together. So again, this is something similar we do with biblical teaching. Uh, we find like passages that talk about this topic, and then we try to think how they, they are connected together. And sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's very obvious how two pieces of puzzle uh, are connected together, sometimes it's not as obvious. Again, I'll give you one example from my family. One time, uh, me and one of my kids, we were putting a puzzle together, and first, like it's usually, uh, you put together like easy parts, right? Like it's obvious, you put them together, and then you have some more difficult parts left. So I think we left this uh, more difficult part, and I left, and then I come back, and I see the puzzle got some more colors. But there was one problem. In one place, I could see that it looks like it fits, but actually, there is one problem. And what happened, 
one of my kids, they took a piece of puzzle and they ripped one piece because it didn't actually fit and they actually filled the hole. So it looked kind of okay, but then we had a problem. What problem? Yeah, then we have one piece that doesn't fit anywhere, right? And then there is, we have one empty space that is, had to be filled by this piece that we have used already. And this is often what happens when we build our theological puzzles. You know, we have a piece and we don't really know how to fit it. So what we do, we kind of ignore part of the passage. We kind of uh, rip it apart. We take just one piece and we kind of stick it. Oh, okay, this is a nice picture. It looks, it works. So we know there are some rules as we collect the puzzle. The same works with theology. Um, and I, I showed you like a, a picture, a color picture, you can see that uh, sometimes when we collect a, a puzzle, sometimes uh, we may have some, some pieces missing, right? We don't know actually what should be there. Um, so when we have a piece uh, that we actually doesn't know where it fits, what do we normally do? And normally we have three choices. Uh, one is just to ignore those passages that they don't fit to the picture we already have built, right? We just kind of ignore them, we don't use them. Because we already have pretty nice picture, we kind of get a general idea what it's about. The second option is to find some kind of explanation and to harmonize all those pieces. But it may not be easy, right? To find like, how do you harmonize? I actually can't fit them together. So another option is maybe look uh, what we have, like what pieces of puzzle kind of give us a broad picture that kind of pretty clear. And then we think, what do we do with those maybe just few pieces that don't fit? Maybe we have to find a different approach. Maybe we have to turn it around. Maybe we have to look from different perspective and then kind of build this picture. Um, but also we have to understand that the pieces of puzzles we use, they can be very different. Some are very obvious, it's very clear where it fits, and some are just maybe a dark color. It can fit anywhere, right? So on the second page of your notes, you can see that something similar we can say about biblical revelation, some biblical teachings. Uh, we have, I could say, different degrees of biblical revelation. Some things are very clear, like picture number four. Right, it's very obvious what it is. We know where it fits. It's it's an eye. We know where to put it. Right, it has to be uh, on on the face of the person. So it's very obvious where it fits. But sometimes we have like in the first picture just three dots or three lines, and we have no idea what it is about. Right. So something similar we have in in scripture. Some some questions we may have. We don't actually find an answer. Maybe just some dots but we cannot formulate a picture that we could clearly understand. Uh, some, we have very limited revelation, maybe some lines that kind of give us general idea, some general direction, what it's like, but again, it's not clear. Some are pretty more clear, and I, at the bottom I compare it with, with different doctrines. <coughs> so maybe when we talk about baptism or Eucharist, it's pretty clear it's an eye, right? But what kind of eye? Like, is it like has big lashes? What color is uh, is the eye, and so on? So we have a lot of questions. So with Baptists, you probably know that in general we have 
I don't know, 80% in common between different denominations. But there are 20% where we we're not sure. Some baptize infants, some baptize only adults, and we have some different theological perspective on baptism. So this is those 20% where scripture is not clear. But then if you look at the fifth picture, uh, there can be some ambiguous picture where we are not even sure what it is. It looks like an eye. Actually, who knows what it is on this fifth picture? Black hole, any other thoughts? Moth, yeah, looks like moth, maybe. <laughs> Actually, it's a sun eclipse. Yeah. Yeah, so this is kind of like a schematic view of what, it, what it's like. Uh, I try to find something similar to the eye, but not, not an eye, and this is what I found. But can you imagine, like in the book of Revelation, the one who sees the vision says, I see something like an eye. Right? And the eyelids are like beams of light. Right? And he's like, what is, is it real eye or is it something like an eye? So you may not have no idea that he's describing sun eclipse, right? So this sometimes what happens when we read a passage of scripture is like we have no idea what they're talking about, especially when we read the book of Revelation. So sometimes when we talk about afterlife, this is the questions we may have. Like, we're not completely sure. Yeah, we have like, it looks like this, but what actually it is, we don't know. So, another fun part, uh, as we talk about afterlife, uh, I want you to discuss in the groups, uh, what degree of relation do we have uh, regarding biblical teaching on afterlife? Is it more like picture number four? Everything is quite clear, we can form a clear picture, or is it more like maybe two, or three, or maybe five? So this would be one question to discuss. And another one, you see four pictures. So my question, what do you see there? So maybe discuss in your table and uh, describe, especially I'm interested in picture number four, because first three, I think pretty easy. Actually, each of them may have more than one answer. So if you could maybe discuss, what do you see? But also try to think, what is in picture number four, this uh, colored one? Okay, so I'll give you maybe three, four minutes to talk about this. Uh, actually, one of the pictures, I thought like I have two options for each of first three pictures, but I've heard already four answers uh, for one of the pictures. So let's see what you, what you see. Okay, picture number one. What do you see? Seal. Seal. Horse or donkey, right? Anything else? Kangaroo. Oh my goodness, I didn't see kangaroo. But some can see kangaroo, right? Okay. Anything else? Sorry? Capybara. Okay. So we already have four four things people see, right? Okay, number two. That should be easy, right? Duck and rabbit. Anything else? Okay. That's pretty clear. That I think this is for first graders. And picture number three, there we have heard already four options. So, yeah. Lady, what, 
what kind of lady? Old lady, senior lady, okay. Somebody have seen a mouse? Okay. Bob Robson? Okay, somebody can see Bob Robson. I don't know who that is. And what else? So senior lady, uh, mouse, Bob Robson, young lady. Did everyone see a young lady? And somebody mentioned turtle. Turtle. Yeah. So, okay, so five already. Okay, skiing. Okay, so somebody can see skiing. Okay, picture number four. What do you see there? Light bulb. That's pretty obvious, right? It's right in front of us. But what else? What, be, what do you see behind? Wine glass? Wine glass? Okay, some can see some... Maybe like, I don't know, like dining table with wine glasses, okay. Buildings, street lights, okay, yeah. Clouds, okay. Okay, probably some of you have seen other things, but I think you see this exercise, right? Like we look at the same picture, but like even simple picture like number three, we have five options. Right? Like, uh, honestly, I didn't see in picture four, like, wine glass. Uh, like, I thought it said, like, a city lights or something like that, but it may not be. Right? Actually, I don't know what it is. Like, I just found it on the web, so I have no idea what it is. Um, but I think you get the point, right? We may look at the same passage, but we can see very different things. And very often, our background can determine what we see. Uh, our religious background, our cultural background, right? Uh, and so on and so on. Uh, so maybe this uh, fourth picture, this is something similar uh, to the picture of the afterlife we are going to discuss. Some things will be pretty clear. It's a light bulb, right? It's very obvious, it's right in front of us. But some we may just guess, like it looks like a buildings behind that, right? Maybe buildings, so maybe some street lights, but maybe not. Maybe it's wine glasses, right? Or clouds, or some can see maybe it's just a decoration, a piece of paper bent in, in this way. So, no idea. So, when we discuss uh, the topic of afterlife, we'll have very similar experience. Something's pretty clear, some things like we kind of may guess what it is, we have general idea, but we are not very sure, and some things uh, can be quite ambiguous. Maybe it's a seal, or maybe it's a donkey, who knows? Uh, so in a way we have to learn to live with such reality, because scripture doesn't give us very clear picture of everything. Right? As I mentioned earlier, some things are quite clear, some we have general outlines, some are just few dots that maybe we can try to connect together, but we're not sure if we're connecting them properly, because some, some, somebody else may connect them differently, right? And we have to recognize maybe there's another option to connect those dots. 
So even Paul, when he was talking about scripture, he said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see only a reflection as in the mirror. And you should remember the context, uh, because at that time they didn't have glass mirrors. They would polish a piece of silver and they would use it as a mirror. So we could see, I think one of the passages, one of other translations say, we see dimly, right? We don't see very clearly. So this is what often happens when we discuss a certain doctrine. Uh, also, some things we don't even know, like uh, in Deuteronomy, it talks about secret things that belong to the Lord, but there are also things revealed which belongs to us that we may follow them. So we have to accept uh, that some things we may not know, some things we may know partially, and we have to recognize our limitations, and we also have to be uh, quite honest about strength of our arguments. It's okay to take certain position, but we have to be honest and say, well, actually, this is what I think, but I'm not sure if that's a strong argument. I'm not sure if I can say it certainly. Actually, I don't know. I'm not sure. Is that okay if you can say it like this? Yeah. yeah, I think in light of what we deal with, we have to be willing to say that. So now let's approach more closely to another context, which is biblical anthropology. Because pretty much how you view a human being, this is, it will directly impact on what happens after death. Uh, so we read in scripture that Bible talks about us and uses uh, passages like, uh, or words like body, soul, spirit, and we will look at different perspectives, uh, what it means. Because you can look at some of the perspective on the human constitution. One is called monism or physicalism, which basically text tells that we are physical beings. We have only one nature, one material nature, and these are our human bodies. And they would not deny that there is a soul or spirit, but they would say this is part of our bodies. This is function of our bodies. So when we describe uh, our inner life of our bodies, we dis describe it as soul. In Greek, it's psyche. This is where we get uh, our word psychology, right? So it talks about our psychological condition, our, what happens inside of us, what we think, what we feel, what we experience in, inside of us. Um, so maybe those who are in favor of this perspective, they would use passages like Psalm 103 that says, uh, for he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are dust. That means we are material beings. God formed a man from the dust of the ground, from the uh, material, and he made us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 47, it says, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. So uh, those who hold this perspective, they would point to scriptures like this and say, we're just physical body. So obviously when person dies, what happens? That's it. Yeah, body goes to the ground and this is the end of life. But, but this is like even physicalist or monist have slightly different perspective on this and we are going to talk about this later. Another very popular perspective is what sometimes we'll call dichotomy, which basically talks about two parts of the human being or two natures. One is material, our body, and one is immaterial, which is, can be, we can use the word soul or spirit to describe this immaterial part. So obviously when person dies, what happens? This immaterial part continues to exist, right? And we talk about soul that uh, stays alive after death. Uh, 
And usually they would point to passages like Matthew 10, 28 that says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So actually you can kill the body, but not the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So this passage seems quite clear that there is different parts, right? There is body and there is soul. But there is also trichotomous perspective, people who hold to trichotomy view, which actually says, but Bible doesn't talk only about souls, it talks also about spirit. And we have passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that says, May God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is even more complicated. So it means like we have not only souls, but also spirit. And there are, like, I won't even go into there, but basically there are different perspectives. What happens after death with your soul? What happens with your spirit? For now, just for simplicity, we will hold to the, uh, look at uh, first two positions, right? So there is physicalism and there is, uh, sometimes it's called dualism or dichotomy. Uh, another perspective that some people are not aware, uh, it's sometimes called holism or conditional unity or holistic dualism. And basically which says, in this life, we are one united nature. Yes, we have soul, we have body, but it's one, one nature. You cannot separate them. It's basically like alloy. Like for example, you may know that bronze is alloy of uh, copper and tin. But you cannot say this is where tin ends and this is where copper starts. It's just one metal, bronze, right? They're mixed so together that you cannot separate them. The same you can say about salty water, right? It's just salty. You cannot say, oh, this is where water ends and salt, salt begins, right? This is just one thing. Or some make comparison with color, like green color, that is a mixture of blue and yellow. And you cannot really separate. If you separate one, it won't be green anymore. So, and those who hold to this perspective, they would say that according to God's design, our human nature must, must exist as holistic. Uh, so this is why resurrection is necessary to receive the judgment and eternal destiny in the renewed, resurrected, holistic nature. Our uh, whole and complete being, uh, we can spend eternity with God the way we were always meant to exist. Uh, so basically, this is God's design for us, and this is what we'll be like when we are resurrected. We will be one united nature. So this view can uh, the last for intermediate state, and we are going to talk about intermediate state, but this is something temporal. This is something imperfect. This is something not desirable, because this is the disintegration, separation, uh, and this is very unnatural uh, for us as human beings and it doesn't correspond to the perfect will of God. So again, let's have a short discussion. You've heard, you've seen those perspectives. Which is, what of uh, these positions are closest to yours? Monism, dualism, I don't know, trichotomy, or maybe the last one. I didn't look at the fourth, just not, not to complicate things. But let's look at those four positions. Is that okay? I find that uh, the last perspective kind of probably closer to what I see is revealed in scripture, this, uh, as we mentioned, holistic dualism. 
uh, that actually we are one nature, right? You cannot separate, like you cannot say, oh, this is where soul starts. Because we can see like even now modern medicine, it shows like all our thinking, it's connected to our body, our experience, our feelings, right? And people, uh, doctors can actually say like when you have fear, this part of your brain activated, right? When you think some logical, about some logical texts, another part of your brain activated. We know what happens if a person gets a brain damage, right? They may, may not be able to function in some areas of life. Uh, but I think it also shows like it's very close to a Hebrew perspective on human person. Uh, even when they talk about uh, soul, body, uh, but there's also other words like heart, mind, right? Remember, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, right? So I don't think we have to look at those as kind of like separate entities, separate uh, natures. Probably this is more like different aspects of our being. Physical is very obvious, our bodies. We can talk about soul as something what happens inside of us, our thinking, our will, our emotions, and maybe spirit or heart very often in scripture reflects the deepest level of our psychology. This is where our values, this is our orientation of our person is. And this is what we strive for. This is what we live for, right? But again, this is just one of the perspectives. There are some, some who may see a little bit differently. Uh, but in a way, whatever you answer to this question, it will directly impact how you see what happens to the human person, right? And we will see it some of those perspectives. But also another difficulty is uh, when we talk about, let's say, just soul. Because in scripture, and actually it happens with any uh, anthropological terms in the Bible, all of them have many different meanings. You don't have one word that have only one meaning. So all of those terms like soul, spirit, heart, and even flesh, right? They describe human being. All of them have several meanings, five, seven, ten meanings. So you can see I listed some of the meaning of the word soul. And it would be the same like uh, either Hebrew nefesh or Greek psuche. Uh, they would have, their first meaning is life. Uh, soul can also describe human being or any living being, right? It can also describe our inner life of a person, our psychological condition. It can talk about our inner disposition. Sometimes they would use soul to describe myself, right? They would say, uh, save your soul. It would mean save yourself, right? Uh, watch, uh, watch your soul. It means watch yourself. So this is also one of the ways the word soul would use. But also we, we see in scripture sometimes soul describes some Im, something immaterial, something that exists after the death of the body. Uh, another perspective, like when we talk about soul, is it something immortal or mortal? And this is also an important question, because if you are monist or physicalist, of course, uh, soul which is part of the body which is the same uh, one of the functions of the body it is mortal right uh, so many christians believe our soul is immortal even sometimes we talk about our immortal immortal soul right or our eternal soul but we have to be very careful with such language because if you look at first timothy 6 16 it says god alone has immortality because to say that uh, someone is immortal basically to say uh, that they have life in themselves, 
And we know only God has life in themselves. He is life. He gives life. Everything else receives life from God. So I think most of the Christian perspective, they would, even if they talk about immortality of human beings, they would talk about conditional immortality, meaning this is something that God imparts to us. This is something that gives to us. This is what we have being related to God, but not something we have in ourselves. So in a way we could say our soul, not immortal, it doesn't have life in itself, because only God has life in, it, in himself. Right? So this is also important to understand him. And we, we see a lot of scriptures like Acts 17 and 28 where it says, In him we live and move and have our being. It's also important to have a right perspective on the human body. And Ryan actually gave really good talk when he talked about fasting on Sunday about importance of the human body, right? And I, I want to uh, dwell very much on this, but we have to remember that we are bodily creatures. God created us this way, right? And also, God cares about our bodies. Uh, we see many passages in Scripture where God would heal our bodies, where God would feed people, right? But He would take care of the bodies. He would told uh, told His disciples to rest, right? Uh, so, bodies are important for God because sometimes we have this very Platonic perspective that uh, our bodies is something unnecessary. We can just easily leave them behind and be as immortal souls forever in heaven in the presence of God. But for God, bodies are important. He created us as a bodily beings. Uh, so when we talk about salvation, this is another part, um, Scripture doesn't talk only about salvation of souls. It talks about salvation of the whole person. Uh, of the whole human being, which includes soul, spirit, and body. And this is actually one of the important aspects of the, our salvation, is restoration of our body, resurrection of our body, renewals of our bodies. And when we look at the scriptures, what Paul was expecting, often we see it as connected to this future aspect of salvation, like Romans 8, uh, 22 and 23 where he says at the end of this passage, we wait for the adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is what we, he was waiting for. This is what he was expecting. The same we see in Philippians, where it talks about that we await a savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's interesting, there is a passage in Matthew, a uh, very famous passage to show that uh, we as human beings, we do not disappear after death. And it says that God is not God of the dead, but of the living. But if you look carefully at this passage, it connects this idea with resurrection. Because in the beginning of this passage it says, but about the resurrection of the dead. And then it continues to talk about God, who is God of the living. So I think this prepares us to now dive into this topic of afterlife and what happens in between. And as you discussed in the beginning, I don't know what answers you had, and some of you gave different answers. Uh, often we have this popular perspective that basically when unbeliever, non-Christian dies, he goes to hell and spends eternity in hell. When believer dies, he goes to heaven and spends eternity in heaven in the presence of God, with God. Right? And this seems like very clear, very simple perspective. But this is quite simplified perspective, because scripture, I think, gives us a little bit more complicated perspective. And you can see uh, what I put here is a biblical view, 
because it talks about this time between death and resurrection uh, when we are going to be judged and we'll receive our eternal destiny it talks and this is what we're going to talk about and uh, when we say afterlife so this is basically between death and resurrection so sometimes we use and i think this is problem in some english and also other languages in some of the english translation that the word hell when we talked about destiny of unbelievers it's applied to both like first part and the second part it talks about afterlife and about future eternal life the same word is used but actually in greek and in hebrew uh, there may be two different words like the most famous one is hades right hades uh, but this the word that would uh, would be applied to afterlife what happens after death before resurrection but they when they would talk about what happens after resurrection the eternal destiny of unbelievers they would use a different word hyena right uh, i think david already mentioned this right we already talked about this so there are actually two different greek words that describe those two different stages and the same when we talk about heaven what's interesting when bible talks about believers old testament saints uh, who died it also talks to them uh, about them they went to sheol or hades which basically the same thing in different language. Sheol would be Hebrew term, and Hades would be a Greek term. But when it talks about future of believer, it talks about new heaven and new earth. It talks about kingdom of God. Uh, and this is where it stresses uh, words like eternal life and being forever with the Lord. So now let's look, uh, let's look about different perspectives that sometimes Christians may have about uh, afterlife. So one very famous, very popular perspective, sometimes uh, it's called classical view, and, and it's related to dualism. So basically, when we believe that we have body and soul, what happens, our body dies, but our soul survives, right? And our soul uh, is in this intermediate state where we are disembodied, and we have this uh, temporary existence between death and final resurrection. But this raises a number of very perplexing questions, like how can a soul uh, live without a human body? How can it be recognized? How can a soul remain conscious, have memory, feelings, and how can we communicate with each other in this condition? And, and also, am I really myself uh, without my body? So we will look in more details at some answers later. But let's look at another view. Another view would be a monistic view that basically says there is no afterlife. After you die, uh, there is no conscious existence. But even here we would have two approaches. One I called optimistic perspective, which would be perspective of some Christians, some uh, old Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, who would say, yes, we die, nothing continuous existence, but there will be resurrection. God basically will restore this person and they will spend eternity with God. But there is also fatalistic monism, which in New Testament, this is what Sadducees believe, because they believe after death there is nothing. No afterlife, no resurrection, basically this is the end of your life, right? So even with this perspective, perspective you may see different views. 
But the third perspective, uh, we may call it limited existence perspective, it says that some aspect of our person continues to exist, but this is very limited existence. And they would point to passages that would talk about this state as sleep, right? As rest, right? So this is not full activity as we have presently in our bodies, but this is something limited. This is state of restfulness. This is state of sleep, right? Sorry? I said, so where does that happen? Yeah, OK, we'll talk about this. And where does this happen? Uh, before we talk about this, let's talk about how this uh, form of existence is uh, described. So like one perspective would say, like, we have full bodily existence. And they would usually use passages like Luke 16, right, where it describes, remember, this story about a rich man and Lazarus. and they have pretty much full human experience. They remember things, right, what happened to them. They have desires, they have feelings, they have memories, they know about their relatives who are down there, right? So they, they have pretty much full, even bodily experience, because he asked about a finger being dipped and that he would have some relief from the suffering he has. There is some suffering, we don't know, bodily or not bodily, but suffering they experience. Um, so, and some, some interpret it very differently. Some would say that this is, in this condition, our soul by itself, it has a form of a body. It has maybe very thin spiritual body. So when person dies, our physical body disintegrates, but our soul has its own body. And this is what continues to exist. And this is what we have described in passages like Luke 16. But others would say, actually, God gives us temporal bodies. And they would point to the passage where it talks about heavenly bodies. So while we are waiting in this place between death and resurrection, God's, God gives us temporally heavenly body to have certain kind of experience, right? And this is why people could recognize each other, they could have some feelings, memories, and so on. So this would be two different perspectives. Of course, another perspective would be non-existence, and this would be related to monistic view. Again, we see connection, like whatever you believe about our structure, who we are, this would be your perspective on the afterlife. So monists, they would say that, they would point to passages like in Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, uh, for example, Psalm 39, 13, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and I am no more. So it seems like person stops his existence. They also would point like passages like Ecclesiastes that uh, say, in Sheol where we go, there is no work, no thought, no knowledge, no wisdom, right? So it seems like there is no normal human existence in this place. Uh, those who hold to the third perspective, limited existence, they would point to the different language of scripture, words like shadows. So those who are in, in Sheol or Hades are described, one of the words that is used is shadows or shades. Uh, also, they would point to words like being asleep and resting. So how do we know which position is true? How do we like, because like it seems like everyone has some support in scripture, right? And it's important when we discuss like a certain concept, and now we are talking about afterlife, we need to remember that this, each concept is represented by different words, 
phrases, terms, and this is like these pieces of puzzles, somehow they have to be harmoniously connected with each other. Somehow they have to form one holistic picture. We cannot just ignore some of the past and say, okay, they don't fit my picture, I'm not going to use them at all, right? They do exist and you have to explain them somehow. Maybe you have to look from different perspective. Maybe you have to find another way to put them together. So let's talk about this realm of the dead, right? Realm of the dead, which was called Sheol in the Old Testament or Hades uh, in the New Testament. So what's interesting, often in scripture, this place is described as land of darkness. And you see in language of Job, and he talks about land, uh, land of darkness and deep shadow. Land of gloom, like thick darkness, and deep shadow, thick darkness. This is the words uh, he uses. It also talks about, in Psalms, land of silence. So what kind of place is this, where it's darkness, uh, deep shadow, and silence? Right? And also it's important to look at the words that describe what happens to the person who dies. And some of the words that describe this talk about human being or soul as departing, right? Departing somewhere, going somewhere, right? Uh, or sometimes it's talk about human person uh, going to sleep. And we see a number of passages, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. You can look at those, I'm not going to read them. That uh, when they describe person who died as the one who is fallen asleep or who's sleeping. And yeah, and some of you, I think, you know, one of our discussions, you said like, you ask about condition. Like in what condition do people, is it like they're floating, they're sleeping, they're active, what happens to them? And again, we have a number of passages, we have a number of uh, scriptures that describe it very differently. I already mentioned about shadows or shades in Hebrew, it's word Raphaim. And you can look later in those passages that describe uh, those who are in Shoal are Raphaim. They're like shades, shadows. Uh, again, we find this word sleep and also rest or ease or peace. Right? Those who are in Shoal or Hades, they're at rest, they're at peace, they're at ease. And again, we find a number of passages that talk about absence of the normal human activity. We already read one in Ecclesiastes, and in Psalm 6, 5 it says, for, uh, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Shoal, who will give you praise? So again, some of the activity that we would associate with our present life, it's not present in Shoal. And another interesting word, it talks about condition of those who are in Shoal as being weak. You have become as weak as we are. You have become like us. I'm not going to talk about some non-canonical books because they also have some other perspectives like place, uh, show as place of storage of souls. So again, like temporal place where souls are stored. But also we have passages like uh, Luke 16 where it talks about uh, suffering of the rich man and bliss of the Lazarus, right? So again, how do you put all those together? So is it suffering? Is it bliss? Or is it complete inactivity? Or is it sleep? Rest? How do we connect all those pieces of puzzle? So let's look at some of the very key passages that often used as the main argument about conscious uh, 
afterlife experience of the human being. And one of them is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. You probably all know this passage. To be present from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right? So it seems like this uh, verse is very clear. When we are away from our bodies, we are in the presence of the Lord. And normally, like, we don't have much uh, information here, but usually people say, okay, if you're with the Lord, where is the Lord? He's in heaven. So it means, like, when we die, we go to heaven. But what's, what's interesting, when we look at this passage, we have to look at the context. Like, what's the whole uh, context of this passage talks about? And we are not going to read the whole passage, but you can see some of the things that I highlighted. Uh, that Paul talks about that we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands. Uh, he says that we groan, longing to be closed instead of, instead with our heavenly dwelling. We do not wish to be unclosed, but to be closed instead with our heavenly dwelling. And the one who fashioned us for this very purpose is God. So this is God's will for us to be closed. We don't want to be unclosed. So basically here we have three conditions that Paul described. One is condition of our present life, that is described as earthly tent, and our present mortal body. Disembodied state, uh, he talks about being naked or unclosed. And post-resurrection state, a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built with human hands, or he talks about our heavenly dwelling. So it's interesting that Paul uh, wants to be closed. So his desire, his passion is to be closed, meaning having new body, and not to be naked or unclosed, being without body. And that's interesting because normally we read this passage, if you don't look at the context, that Paul wants to get rid of the body and be in heaven as a soul. But actually he says, no, I don't want to be uh, unclosed. I don't want to be naked. I want to be closed with a new body. Right? So this points us to the resurrection, uh, and the language of the resurrection. And actually, if you look at the larger context of the previous chapter, it talks quite clearly about the resurrection. Uh, but what actually, how should we interpret uh, to be present with the Lord? And again, there are two possibilities. One, uh, it would talk about being present with the Lord in our intermediate state as disembodied soul. So basically, when we die, we are in the presence of the Lord as disembodied soul, and we are with God. But another perspective, uh, say, it talks about presence of the Lord in the resurrection. So this is what we see the context of this passage is about. Uh, he wants to be, have a new clothes, new body. Right, new dwelling from God, which would be a resurrected body. Uh, so when he points about, uh, talks about uh, being with Christ, this is what he means. Being with Christ in the resurrection in a new, new body. And again, as I mentioned, each passage we have to look not only in the context of the passage itself, but also the whole scripture. So when we find, where do you find this language, being with the Lord, or even being with the Lord forever? And I, I just uh, showed you three passages, like one from John 14.3, that says, uh, I will go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again, 
and I will take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also. So when Christ talks about that we will be with him, he's not talking about those in this intermediate state. He's talking when I'm returning, and I'll take you to myself, and then you will be with me. Then we have another passage in First Thessalonians 4, 16, 17. He says, the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will be with the Lord forever. So again, being with the Lord forever connected to the Christ coming and our resurrection. And the last passage that I would like to draw attention is 2 Corinthians 4.14. Knowing that uh, to be raised with the Lord, uh, with the Lord Jesus, uh, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So again, his presence is connected with resurrection. Um, there is another passage in Philippians 1, actually it's a mistake, it should be 1, not 11, 1, 21, 14, uh, 24. Uh, it talks about, uh, for me to die, uh, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, uh, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So again, it seems like when, when he talks about death, departure, remember he said one of the language of death is departing, right? So when I depart, uh, I will be with Christ. And again, people immediately think, oh, this talks about this afterlife experience, this state between death and resurrection, I will be with Christ. But it probably, the interpretation of this passage would depend what is your view uh, on other topics, right? Because you can look, and there is one perspective, maybe at the end we will look at this, that will say that after death, uh, we will experience time differently than we experience it now. So basically, there will not be a long gap in between these two points, but our immediate next point after our death will be resurrection and presence of Christ. So even though it talks about, yeah, I die and I experience presence of Christ, but you can interpret, you can look at this very differently. But now we find to maybe the strongest perspective on uh, this intermediate state, and it's based on this parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. Uh, you all know this story, right? when Lazarus died and he's taken to Abraham bosom. And by the way, like we joked uh, in the beginning about Abraham bosom, but you probably know their context, like why they would use this word. Remember where else it talked about somebody being at somebody's bosom? John, right? At the Lord's, uh, at the Last Supper, he was at the bosom of Jesus. And you can see this passage in John 13:23. And basically what it meant, because at that time, they would not sit at the tables as you sit, they would recline. So basically they would be like uh, in reclining position, and the guest who had the highest honor, he would be the closest to the host. So basically his body would be very close to the uh, chest or this area of, of the host. 
So basically when it says that Lazarus was as, as Abraham's bosom, it means it describes some kind of feast, some kind of uh, supper. And Lazarus became the most honored guest. He's with Abraham. He's the closest to Abraham. Uh, but what's interesting, uh, this described this language of the feast, uh, but also we find the language of Hades, right? The rich man is in Hades, uh, and there is a lot of discussion. Is Abraham bosom, it's part of the Hades, or this is something different? Right? Are there different compartments? And during intertestamental period, uh, there were some perspectives that yes, actually Hades has different compartments, and yeah, some are more in deeper, some higher, and some interpret this in this way, that there are different areas of Hades, and some would be where the righteous would be, and another area where wicked people would be. But probably one of the biggest questions, how do we interpret this parable? Should we interpret this parable as giving us topography of afterlife? Okay, this is what Hades is like, there's a different compartments, there is a big gap between these compartments, or is it more like a lesson, a story, a parable, that makes an ethical point about wealth, poverty, compassion, and repentance? And again, your perspective will determine how do you, uh, how do you use this, this parable. So since our time is coming closer, uh, maybe what we'll do, let's think like how do we connect all those different stories, parables, uh, descriptions of afterlife, Hades, Sheol, into one big picture, right? And Again, maybe I'll give you like three minutes to discuss in your groups. What do you think would be the best way to connect those quite different pictures, some that describe people who are shades, shadows, asleep, at rest, not showing much activity? And then you have story of, of Lazarus and rich man where they have full bodily experience. They experience pain or bliss, and they talk, they have memories, they have desires, and they, yeah. How do we connect all those together? How can we build one holistic uh, picture from all of those different pieces? So I'll give you a few minutes to talk about this. I was able to put all those puzzles nicely together into one clear picture. If you are, I want to listen, I want to hear you. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, like it's... So let's go back, remember when we talked in the beginning about puzzle and these uh, four pictures, right? Remember this color picture of the light bulb? And also some of the background is very shady, kind of like not very clear what it shows to us. So. As we look at these different passages, this is something that we deal with, right? Some things are quite clear, right? And maybe in a minute we are going to talk what we can know for sure, right? What is quite obvious from the scripture. Some things we may kind of guess what it is, but we cannot completely know. Some are really like really vague and we very ambiguous. We cannot really say it looks like this or maybe this, maybe it's a seal or donkey, who knows? And some are really mysterious. We, we cannot even interpret them properly, right? So let's maybe try to see and discuss like what, what we can know for sure. 
And maybe then we have to go back, remember the puzzle? What do we do in the beginning? We do the frame, right? We do the frame. So what we know for sure that God created us as the holistic human being. God gave us bodies, right? And whatever our perspective on the afterlife, uh, our disembodied existence is not perfect will of God, right? Because God wants us to have as a full human being, body, soul, spirit together. Right? And this is what will happen in resurrection. Not, God, not only God will restore it, but he will, we could say, upgrade it. Right? It will be brought up on a different level. There will be something, like Paul says, that uh, what ear has not heard, what eye uh, has not seen, this is what we will experience in our bodies, souls, and spirits. Right? So we could say, we know for sure that God created us as holistic being. We know that bodies are important. Right? And we already discussed this. What else can we know for sure? I think we can quite clearly say, maybe not as quite uh, clearly as what we said before, but that uh, our existence after death does not stop. Yeah, because otherwise it would be really difficult to explain all this language of departing, leaving, going somewhere, right? And uh, all those parables and stories, and even language of shades or shadows. It's still something, right? It may not be like full person, but it's something, right? And it would be very difficult to, uh, to say, no, like, person just disappears. This is the end of life. Maybe there'll be resurrection, but actually after death, there is nothing. No intermediate state. So there seems something continuous. But now, in what condition? Like, what is it like? And here we have, like, maybe a large number of passages that talks about something non-perfect. Sleep, rest, right? Shades, shadows, and so on. So this is something that we exist, but this is not full human existence, right? This is not complete reality for which we were created for. And actually, even some classical perspectives like uh, Catholic Orthodox, uh, even though they would talk very strongly about uh, like their language would be very close to the parable of Richman and Lazarus, they still would say this is not full experience of the human beings. Because after the resurrection, this is when people will experience their eternal destiny, either this way or that way, right? Uh, but how do we, like, okay, it seems like a number of passages point that there is some experience, but this is not full human experience. But what do we do with passages like Luke 16, right, where it talks about quite full experience, memories, desires, will, and so on. And also we have, we didn't read this passage, but in Revelation talks about souls under the altar who kind of pray and address to God and say, God, when will you avenge for our blood and so on. So it seems they're talking, they have desires, and so on. Again, remember where those passages are located. Book of Revelation, right? A lot of very enigmatic language, a lot of uh, metaphors, a lot of pictures, that, which can be interpreted very differently. And also, language of the parable. And we know that we have to be very careful not to interpret everything in the parable as, as a reality, right? Parables usually have one important lesson it wants to teach us. We usually don't use parables to, okay, how do we invest? Let's look at those parables about money and investment, and this is what we learn from this. 
the, the point of this parable is different about faithfulness, about honesty, and so on. Uh, so what it seems like uh, there is some unclarity, right? Like this background on that picture that I showed you. Maybe we can say, yeah, there is some, some existence that continues, but we cannot be sure. Um, but there's also a number of things that we cannot say at all. Like we cannot explain them. We don't know what it is. We have a lot of questions. And I think it's okay to have this. But one thing for sure that we, we have a lot of passages that point that do not draw us attention to the afterlife, but draw our attention to the resurrection. And I wanted to, to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis, it's on page 11, that says, um, the earliest Christian documents give a casual and emphatic assent to the belief that the supernatural part of man survives the death of the natural organism. But they are very little interested in the matter. Uh, what they uh, intensely interested in is the restoration or resurrection of the whole composite creature by a miraculous divine act. And you have another quote from Richard Middleton who says, having studied the relevant text, um, I'm surprised at how little evidence there is actually for the interim state in the New Testament, certainly less than I had expected. In the end, however, it does not matter. Authentic Christian hope does not depend on the intermediate state. And this is what I find in scripture, that yes, we have some language, but sometimes this language is not very clear. We have many questions. It's like that hydra, hydra, right? Like that we, you, you take one question and it brings you even more questions, right? But some things we know for sure, that our scripture points us to the resurrection, to the full life that we will have because of Christ, his death and his resurrection. And this is on the last page. Uh, we see the emphasis of scripture on his victory over death and Sheol. In book of Revelation, he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. And keys mean authority. So he basically shows that he is overcomer. He overcame whatever we will experience during death and Hades. This is not the final word. The final word is our resurrection because of Christ. Amen? Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.